It's good to see you all. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning. As I say every week, thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary, into this space. And for those of you that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thank you for bringing the church into your dining room, your living room. I'm going to say maybe your porch, but it might be a little cold, all right? But um, just so grateful that we get the opportunity to gather. And as you saw in the short video there, we are in this series for the month of January called On Earth As It Is In Heaven. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, taught us to pray. The disciples come to him and say, hey, Lord, teach us to pray. And he begins to unpack for them, like, what should be sort of this template, this model for prayer. And so that is what we're kind of centered on in this month of January. And if you've been a part of Crosspoint over the years, you know that this is something we return to in January. And so it's a new series and it's an old series. Um, and we want to keep revisiting what is God's heart? What would it look like to see the kingdom of heaven advance so that the Lord's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven? So as we get into things uh, this morning, um, I want to tell you a story. A few weeks ago, this is right before Christmas, the days leading up to Christmas, we had a wonderful opportunity as a church. A number of you participated uh, in, we got to, to serve the city of Altamont Springs. There was a great event at Crane's Roost Park, and we had a little booth there, and kids could come and make ornaments, not only for themselves and their family, but also uh, at a, um, to, to serve to make ornaments for those that are at this assisted living facility. It was just this beautiful thing. Um, and in that, we got this wonderful opportunity to interact with literally, like, they weren't joking when they said there'll be thousands of people. And I was like, yeah, really? I don't know. And then there were thousands of people. There was no social distancing at all, right? And there were just thousands of people. And we, I remember just having the joy of having conversations and people asking particular questions about, oh, where are you guys from and this. And at one point, as I was talking to a particular gentleman, um, he asked me this this question. He heard that we were a church, and, um, and then he figured out that um, I somehow it came up in the conversation that I am part of the church and serve as pastor at the church. And so then he asked me this question. He said, what kind of church are you? And so in this moment, I thought, okay, well, hopefully he's got 45 minutes. Um, I'll let him know. Um, and, uh, and so I just began as quickly as I could to try and, I'm like, oh, man, okay, well, how would I describe that? And I began to try and let him know Everything that we do is about the gospel. We want to be centered on Jesus. Um, we are this non-denominational church. We're into church planning. I'm trying to highlight some of the things, but just more than anything, trying to tell them, listen, Jesus is a big deal to us. We want everything to be about the life, death, the resurrection, the promised return of Jesus and how that shapes everything. And I'm looking at him wondering, like, is he going to have follow-up questions? Is, he, is this resonating at all? And I'm just trying to, like, as quickly as I can, but as emphatically as I can, just let him know, like, if you come, like, it's going to be about the gospel. That's what we're about. And as I was nearing the end of my explanation in response to this question, what kind of church are you, I started to stop talking. And he, and he looked at me, and he said, as he was, but at this point, he's like looking at me and kind of walking away. He's like, okay. Um, he's like, I just, wanted to, I just wanted to make sure you weren't one of those woke churches. And I was taken aback. I was like, and, and then he just kind of kept walking. And I didn't get a chance to talk to him. And I, I didn't get a chance to ask a follow-up of, well, well, sir, what do you mean by that term? And what we want to explore this morning in the, this series is God's call to justice and racial reconciliation. And I'm not up here this morning as the resident expert, and you should sit at my feet because I know all about this. That is ridiculous. But I do know that the Bible talks a lot. The Bible talks over and over and over again about God's heart for all peoples, all nations, all languages, all tribes, all cultures. 
And if I'd had a moment to follow up with this man, one of the things I would have liked to have done was to ask him, what do you mean by that word? Because I think part of the challenge in our cultural moment in which we live is that words and phrases get tossed around and they mean different things to different people. And so if that guy had allowed me to respond, if he had said, are you a woke church? If I had said, well, if by woke you mean we are aware, we have a growing awareness of some of the issues that still plague our land, of some of the, both the beauty and the brokenness of our culture, of our country's history. If you mean we have a, a growing awareness and understanding in heart for just the impact that that has had down through the generations, well, then I think it would be fair to say, as I believe it should be fair for all Christians to say in this country, we're a woke church. If you mean by woke that we are now embracing full-on cancel culture and everything that there is about critical race theory, and we'll get into all that. So if you're like, are we going to hit any hot topics this morning? There's landmines everywhere, and I plan to try and navigate all that. I don't plan to do that perfectly. If you mean by that that there's a disregard for any of the beauty of this nation we live in, well, then no, we're not a woke church in that sense. And it just points out, right? I mean, even just saying that word and talking in this kind of environment, it's kind of like, like, how do we respond? How do we feel about that? How should we think about these things? And what does it look like to be the church in this particular moment? And as I said, part of me even being up here, like, I want to learn and grow in these areas. I am not up here because I've got this all figured out. I'm continuing to try and learn and struggle through this. But I do think that as the church, it's something we should be praying through, looking to the scriptures, having conversations, figuring out how to have conversations in a way that is honoring to God and to other people, looking for places where we can add nuance, ask follow-up, to not just sort of lob particular phrases as if, and then it kind of just puts people on the defensive or you somehow think, well, this person must believe this because they said a certain word. What would it look like for us as a church to be growing together as we move forward toward God's heart for justice, for racial reconciliation? I mean, I, I said this a moment ago, but you know, Matthew 6.10, Jesus says this when he teaches us to pray. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's part of Jesus' prayer. And that's what we're exploring in this, this series. That it's not about my kingdom advancing or your kingdom advancing. It's about Jesus' kingdom advancing. It's about Jesus' will, like the Lord's will being done here on earth as it is in heaven. That there's a way God intends for things to be and that is spoken of as the heavenly realm. And the opportunity for the church is to pray and to be about the work of seeing that heavenly realm invade this earthly realm. And so if we're to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it begs the question then I put before you, well, what does heaven look like? And though we don't have the time to explore all that, nor do I have all the answers of what that is, I do know that the scripture speaks somewhat to this. 
that they give an indication of what we can expect and what it looks like when the realm of heaven invades this earthly realm. Because the book of Revelation, amidst all the questions and controversies and and things that one can get into there, it tells a story, and it's an overarching theme here, that Jesus wins, that Jesus conquers, that Jesus is our victorious king, and he one day is going to split the sky, and he's going to come back, and he's going to set everything right. And yet, we don't just sit around waiting for that day to happen. He's inviting us to play, to pray, to participate in seeing the Lord's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we ask this question, okay, what does heaven look like? What's the model? What should we be looking towards? And when we get to a place like Revelation 7, look at these words. After this, John gets this vision. I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes with palm branches, meaning there's this picture of righteousness that we have because of Jesus. Palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. So we want to see the heavenly realm invade here in earth. Well, heaven looks like every tribe, tongue, nation, every culture, every people group, every socioeconomic background, that everyone is worshiping and praising King Jesus. And it's not this worship just of my God. It's our God. It's our King. We're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus that gives us access to the throne room of God. Like the picture of the heavenly realm is a number beyond what we can even count or imagine, and it is every people gathered around that God's heart is this diverse group of people worshiping him. Like, that's where the story's heading. And if that's where the story's heading, the calling of the church is to say, it starts now. Like, Jesus didn't say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is coming one day. No, it's repent, move in a new direction, because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Like, he's ushered that in. And so we're to be about this work. And so then, if that's the question that asks, like, what's heaven look like? Then we have to ask, all right, well, is this what earth looks like? Is this what our community looks like? Is this what your neighborhood looks like? Is this what our church looks like? And the reality, I think we have to acknowledge, no, there is not this harmony, this perfect harmony, this perfect beauty that exists among the different ethnicities and cultures and backgrounds. There is still strife, there is still pain, there's still misunderstanding, But I believe this, the thing that unifies, we're going to see this in our text this morning, it is not my strategy or your strategy or the best the culture has to offer. We have to go back and see what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? What does his life, death, and resurrection mean for this moment in human history? And the calling then, as we've looked at each week, there's this Hebrew word mishpah, which means justice. Because this earthly realm doesn't look like the heavenly right now, there's this call for us to engage in this work of reconciliation, of restoration, this calling to mishpat. So that's what we want to explore. Now, I think it's helpful as we think about this, too, to recognize that the result of reconciliation, I think, is that there's this beautiful diversity. But it's possible to have, like, diverse cultures and diverse spaces, even diverse churches, without there necessarily being reconciliation. Hear these words. This is a pastor up in New York City named Rich Velotis in his book, The Deeply Formed Life, and he says this, To be sure, diversity is a good thing, 
But in and of itself, it is not the same as reconciliation. On the surface, diversity looks wonderful, especially in church settings. However, as with justice, the temptation is for us to stop there. When we make diversity the end goal, we are no different from New York City subway cars. New York City subway cars are crowds of diverse, anonymous people in close proximity. But the church is called to be more than a sanctified subway car. So our calling is to be this diverse group of people on this mission, seeing reconciliation take place. So how does that actually happen? What might that look like? So I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you brought a Bible, please turn there. You can also go on your phone to cplife.church, and you'll see something that says sermon notes. As you scroll down, you can click that, and the text will be there. I'll go ahead and read this. Any of the things that I'm putting on the slides are there. And you may have noticed already as well, in the, we have pews. We weren't used to having pews as a church, um, and there's places to put Bibles. And so there's some new paperback Bibles, and they will test your eyesight, <laughs> all right? Um, but other than that, font was a little smaller than we thought. But anyway, um, but there's those as well. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. So let me go ahead and read this, and we'll make our way through this text. Again, being mindful of the fact you don't need my thoughts, opinions, my take on any of these matters. Like, we need to hear from God. We need to hear his word spoken to us. So Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, it says this. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. And at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away, Peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, verse 19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. This is God's word for us this morning. So what I want to do for a moment is put before you this this idea as Paul is unpacking this and really what God is laying out for us is that if there's going to be reconciliation, if we're going to see that happen, and it's spoken of so beautifully in this text, there's a call to remember. And so I think it's going to require us to remember. It's going to require us to remember a few things. We need to remember the bad news, and we'll look at that to start. We also then need to remember the good news. So we will spend a little bit of time in the the bad news, but that is so that hopefully we have a greater appreciation for the good news. And then we need to remember our calling, that there's a, it's laid out for us in those last few verses about our identity, but it's not an identity just to sit back. Rooted in that is a calling. Like each aspect of the identity that are named in verses 19 to 22, they're action-oriented. 
So what does it look like to remember our calling? So if we look at verses 11 to 12 for a moment, we need to remember the bad news. If we're going to be about this work of reconciliation, we need to see, and we'll get into some of the cultural context that Paul is writing. He has helped in starting this church in a city called Ephesus, all right? And he's writing this letter to them. And he says in verse 11, so then, all right? And so that follows what he had just laid out in the previous verses, that we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of your own. It's a gift so that no one can boast. He tells us in verse 10, like, we are God's workmanship created, like, to do these good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he's laying out for this church. But in doing that, in talking about their calling and everything that they've experienced, he does say, hey, you do need to remember the bad news. And so what is listed here and what's spoken of is kind of two aspects. There's some bad news, and it speaks to their cultural moment about things horizontally, there's this reference to those that are part of the uncircumcision. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then there's also this bad news as it pertains to a vertical relationship. So not just with out to one another, but also in relationship between us and God. But first, this horizontal aspect is spoken of. When it says, remember, he's saying, remember at one time, and he's writing to a group of people that are Gentiles, all right? And so the world is broken up. The way Paul's writing it, the understanding for people would have been there are Jews and there are Gentiles, right? I don't know all of your cultural backgrounds. Most of us in this room would be in the Gentile camp, all right? And so he's writing, he says, at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised, which was a, a term of contempt and derision by the Jews toward the Gentiles. We look at our cultural moment and we can see there's pain and there's heartache and there's division and derision. There's these things that take place. And I don't offer it as, well, it's always been that way, as if that should excuse anything. But rather, we see this problem has been going on for a long time. And yet it should encourage us because what we're seeing take place in Ephesus, as Paul writes about, is a group of people that become one, that become united, become reconciled. And so we need to see how big a deal this was. We read Jew and Gentile, and maybe we think, oh, they're called the uncircumcised, and it's kind of like, is that all you got? Like, really, that, that big of a deal? But for that moment, here, let me read to you something by a theologian in his commentary, William Barclay. If you, as a group of people, viewed another group of people as fuel for the fires of hell, if you believe that was their sole purpose, I would think it's fair to say there's a little bit of tension Right? There's not a great relationship horizontally between these two groups. So look at how he describes, historically speaking, the Jews' view of the Gentiles. The Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all nations that he has made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need. This means She's unexpectedly given birth. She's gone into labor. For that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. So this woman's crying, is anybody a doctor? That sort of moment, and you just ignore her because you're like, I don't want to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. Such contact with a Gentile is the equivalent of death. You hear what it's saying? Imagine running home and being like, Mom, Dad, I'm getting married. Oh, who is she? Oh, this little Gentile girl from down the, down the street. They would literally conduct your funeral 
You weren't physically dead, but you were dead to them forever. So there's animosity here that exists. And yet Paul writes these things and he'll say, you guys have been made one. There's this unity. Like how does that actually take place? And what we see over and over again, not only here in Ephesians 2, but throughout the scriptures, is that sort of animosity and strife is only reconciled through the finished work of Jesus. And so God is telling us through his servant Paul, you got to remember the horizontal issues that you had, but you also need to remember where you were in your vertical relationship with God. And so let's continue. As he does, he says this, all right? Verse 12, at that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's how it's described in our vertical relationship with God. So there's that list again. You're without Christ, you're excluded, regarded as a foreigner, without hope, without God. You're Christless, friendless, godless, hopeless, right? Like no one's excited to share that. No one's posting that on social media. I mean, it's like, what? I mean, there's a bad spot to be. And yet, unless we remember the bad news, this wasn't just true of the Ephesian Gentiles. This is my story. This is your story. This is who we were. This is our condition apart from the grace of God. But when Jesus breaks in, when Jesus takes your heart of stone and makes it a living, beating heart of flesh that would be in worship of God, when that takes place, the implications of that are not only in the vertical sense, but they work their way out horizontally. What does it look like to pursue peace? But we have to remember, this is why John Stott says this in his commentary on Ephesians, there are some things which scripture tells us to forget, like the injuries which others do to us, but there is one thing in particular which we are committed, commanded to remember and never to forget. This is what we were before God's love reached down and found us. For only if we remember our former alienation, distasteful as some of it may be to us, shall we be able to remember the greatness of the grace which forgave and is transforming us. The reason this is so important, the reason this, all of this is in here in the context of two groups of people being reconciled is because we have to understand, first and foremost, like on our own, we're dead, we're gone, we're lost, we're hopeless. I have got no reason to look down in, with a self-righteous disdain toward anybody. Like I am dead on my own. That, that's what I deserve. That's what the scriptures are telling us. And the moment, the, the, the more that begins to grip our heart, it begins to, hopefully, begins to chip away at our self-righteousness, at our pride. Hopefully opens us up to say, oh, if that was my condition, what if I happen to be wrong about you fill in the blank? What if I'm not an expert just because I read this one blog one day or I listened to this podcast and suddenly like I know everything about this topic. Might it make us a more humble people? Not that we don't have conviction, not that we don't speak out, but might it soften us to be like, hey, I have a lot to learn here. That's what this does. And so remember the good news in 13 to 18, he just lays out and it starts so beautifully in verse 13, but now, all right? It's so helpful in the, in the scriptures to pay attention to where we get that sort of word. It's why back in 
Earlier in chapter 2, verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy. It's just been laying out that we're dead in our sins and all this, right? But God. And now here we have, but now. So yes, we remember the bad news, but we don't stay there. We remember what Christ has done. But now, it says in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. I mean, just look at some of this. He's saying, you now, because of the work of Christ, because of the shed blood of Christ on the cross, who died the death that you and I deserve, who has extended his grace to us, there's a nearness now that you have to God. There's access that you have. There's peace that you have, not only vertically, but also now out toward others. Like Jew and Gentile to be reconciled. Think about that. Even the disciples, you think about their background. One who is making a living as a tax collector, exploiting his fellow Jews. He was hated. You've got other disciples that are zealots who are looking to overthrow the Romans any chance that they get, right? So one's working for the oppressive Romans, one's trying to overthrow them, and Jesus says, you guys are both on my team. Like, he unites people in the gospel, regardless of their background, regardless of their occupation, socioeconomic status, any of that. Like, the gospel is big enough to bring about healing amongst the disciples, and God is continuing to do this. He brings together Jew and Gentile that hated one another. And so there's this oneness. And then Paul uses this remarkable image here. As he's talking about the ordinances, he's really saying, listen, the law which would condemn you, Jesus has fulfilled it. And now, the result of that, he says, all right, it speaks of this wall. He said, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. This, most likely, is another reference that people in that time and place would have understood. That if you were to visit, a couple thousand years ago, you were to visit the temple in Jerusalem, you would have seen that there was a place where the Gentiles were allowed to be. There's a particular court. There's a particular section. But then there were these inner courts. There was literally a wall. And the Gentiles were not allowed to venture any further, that only the Jewish people were allowed to go into that particular space. And this excavation work by archaeologists over the years have been done and things that you know, people who've studied this have come to, to realize is that literally there was a sign that was posted. Like this was inscribed there that no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That was the sign that was posted there. I don't even know how to put that in our context here. I mean, it's like, okay, yeah, anyone's welcome to sit in the back three rows, but if you come for, you know, forward more, you know, closer to the stage, like, okay, well, you only have yourself to blame for your ensuing death. Like, wait, what's happening here? But that was the reality. And then Paul says this, that wall has been obliterated, destroyed. The Jew and Gentile both have equal access to God the Father. He is uniting them. He's bringing them together. And he's saying there's this new man or this new humanity that has been created. Like that's what God has done. And so, yes, when you become a Christian, that doesn't mean your culture goes away or your skin color changes, your, your upbringing, your background. No, no, that is all there. And it's there by God's design. We see God's creativity, the way he has created this beautiful diversity. 
But in that diversity, there's a unity that's found in the finished work of Jesus because what he has made you is you are a completely new person. There's this new humanity. There's this third race in essence that he's, that he's created. It's no longer Jew and Gentile that would be divided, but rather there's this new humanity. And us as the church, that's our identity. We get to put that on display. There is a world that I think at its best is even trying to figure out these things. How can there be flourishing? How can the races and backgrounds and all the cultures actually flourish together? And it's only in the gospel, I believe, that that is possible. That's what we're seeing here. I love the words of D.A. Carson. He says this, If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. And if he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician And if he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And he has sent us a savior. And this savior has made a new humanity. You think of the Missouri River and the Ohio River flowing into the Mississippi. It's like this this image here of two becoming one. It's this beautiful picture. If you are here in Christ, you're part of this new humanity. Like God has done that. We can't do that on our own. And so for a few minutes, I just want to ask this this question. Do you see what's so clearly laid out? There's this wall that's been obliterated, but it's not because the Jews and the Gentiles got together and said, hey, you know what, we need to stop fighting and like, can we just come up with, you know, come up with some sort of arrangement? It's that Jesus entered into the mess. That Jesus was condemned in our place. That Jesus, the blood of Christ. I mean, this is what has opened this up. And it's completely obliterated. And there's this whole new way to live and operate. And so a question I think we have to wrestle with communally is, will we choose the way of the cross? Like, will we embrace that? Will we see that there's spiritual issues that get in the way of reconciliation? Will we see what's possible through the cross or will we simply listen to the culture? Now, I don't mean that as condemning toward the culture. I wanna be clear about this. There are lots of things that are happening in the culture that are not God-honoring, right? And lots of things in the church that are not God-honoring. And there's lots of things that can happen in, in the culture that we yeah, may rightly need to be critiqued and the same in the church. But like, I wanna at least assume the best too that there are people that are genuinely trying to figure things out, that genuinely do long for there to be reconciliation, do long for there to be more flourishing for all races, for all backgrounds, for all cultures. But I do think it's helpful to stop and say, okay, what is being offered by the culture and what is unique that the church has to offer? And so one of the things I want to give to you, and I've been wrestling with this, honestly, that like where we are in this message right now, all right? Um, even at 5.45 this morning when I was working on some of this stuff, I was like, do I get into this section? I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I've, literally, it's been kind of all week, like what to do with, what are some of the dominant like, like ways the culture seeking to answer this question of racial reconciliation? And it's a lot. There's a ton to unpack. I don't presume, again, to be an expert on any of it, uh, one of the things that's helpful, and it's listed in the message notes, so if you go to the sermon notes at you know, cplife.church, one of the things you'll see is a link to an article uh, by Tim Keller. I would commend this to you. Um, it's a 30-page article. Some of you are like, we call that a book in my house, but whatever, right? Um, and so it's this 
lengthy article, but I think it does a beautiful job of just kind of laying out, hey, what is the biblical idea of justice? And then particularly as it pertains to race, and what are some of the secular theories that are out there that even if we assume the best are trying to bring about reconciliation but fall short? And if you've been a part of Crosspoint, and you can go back in our, our sermon archive on our website, and you can see um, sermons in this same series from 2020 and 2019 and uh, 2018. Um, and one of the things that is a Keller unpacks in there is that part of, um, part of the approach sometimes of the culture is, well, we're just all individuals and this hyper-individualism, and you just kind of pull yourself up. And it's like, well, that's not exactly true. Like, there's this communal aspect. And, and there's been things over the years as we've explored this. We did a series called Seeking After Shalom midway through 2020. Did an entire thing on, uh, entire message as well in that series on the idea of like systemic racism and corporate moral responsibility and how I actually think the Bible does talk about that. And that's not to make you feel guilty that you're walking around. Like at the same time, the Bible does speak of things that there's a corporate aspect to responsibility. And so that flies in the face of a hyper individualism. And, and I believe we have not thoroughly and not exhaustively and not perfectly, but address some of those matters. That's not what I'm gonna speak to right now. That is in that article. But there's also this movement, and again, we started this message, right? And we hear a word like woke, or we hear things talking about like critical theory or critical race theory. And if you're anything like me, you're like, I know that's getting talked about a lot, and sometimes it if, you know, feels very confusing. What does that all mean? And so what I've wrestled with as well in this particular week and leading up to this is it's hard to figure that out, for one. Um, I've just got a couple minutes here. That article even by Keller, I mean, it's multi, like that section is the longest. It's multiple pages. So I don't presume to be able to say, oh, well, just hang tight. We'll Uber in some lunch. We'll be here all day, right? Like we can't do that. But let me just highlight a couple of things because I think it showcases such a distinction between how Jesus operates, how he uses power, and power is not in and of itself a bad thing. If God didn't have any power, there would, like he wouldn't be able to do the things that he's done. And yet, the way he, is, he willingly empties himself, how he uses resources differently than we, than we do. And so, one of the ways that Keller talks about in that article, in particular in regards to critical race theory, and I'll just run through a few of my notes here, and again, you can dive into it, but there's this belief that all unequal outcomes in wealth, well-being, power is solely due to unjust social structures and systems. The individual never contributes. The individual is never part of that problem. That would be one tenet of this, all right? Secondly, that Art, religion, philosophy, morality, law, media, politics, education, forms of family are determined not by reason or truth, but by social forces as well. So therefore, religious doctrine, politics, and law are always, he says, at the bottom, a way for people to get or maintain social status, wealth, and therefore power over others. This whole thing is centered on, ultimately, this, these power dynamics, all right? Who has the power? Who is oppressed? And there have been great abuses by those in power to those in oppressing people. That is 100% true. But where this goes, I think, is a counterfeit or a false gospel. Third tenet, reality is ultimately about power. Who has it, who does not? 
and this is a key thing, and the less power you have, the greater moral authority that you possess. I don't believe that to be true according to the scriptures, right? That moral authority is not contingent on if you have power, influence, or, or not. Power is exercised through language. Language creates reality. And the only way to reconstruct reality in a just way is to subvert what are called dominant discourses. So at the end of the day, this requires control of speech. And you can see then why this becomes very difficult to even talk about some of these things, because it can be lobbed very quickly, right? Oh, you're, you're trying to dominate in this, and so speech gets censored. And so it just, it's tricky. And I, again, I don't know that the heart behind all these things are bad. I think people are genuinely seeking, how do we bring about reconciliation? But there's this idea here, lastly, of an individual's never able to carve out an identity that is different than or independent of your race, gender, or ethnicity. So like, oh, if you're part of this group, this completely defines you. And I don't actually believe that to be true. Are there influence? Absolutely. And so there's this complexity to all this. Now, that article I would commend to you, I don't have time to unpack all that, but I want to read to you the last portion of this. And I realize there's a lot. Some of you are like, wait, what are we even getting into? But just, I think we need to see that if reconciliation is going to happen, there's a way that the gospel brings it about that is so vastly different than the attempts at the culture to bring it about, even if it's well-intentioned. So think about the story of God. Keller writes this, when God came to earth in Jesus Christ, he came as a poor person to a family at the bottom of the social order. He experienced torture and death at the hands of religious and government elites using their power unjustly to oppress. So in Jesus, we see God laying aside his privilege and power, his glory, in order to identify with the weak and the helpless. Go read Philippians chapter two, you'll see that. And yet, through the endurance of violence and human injustice, he paid the rightful penalty of humanity's sin to divine justice. This is what is taking place on the cross. Isaiah 53 then he was raised to even greater honor and authority to rule. Jesus takes authority, but only after losing it in service to the weak and helpless. Do you see how he uses his authority and power? It's not that he's anti-power. And the way to bring about, as Keller unpacks in that, is to just say, okay, well, one group's had power, and I will flip it to somebody else. You're assuming in that moment that people will handle that perfectly. No, the reality is we're all corrupt. We're all fallen. It's overly simplistic. The gospel is this reminder of like, oh, we're all jacked up. We're all completely messed up. We all need God's grace. And Jesus is the one who has set things right. So the Bible, he says, does not presume an end to this binary of power. Rule and authority, that's what it's speaking of, are not intrinsically wrong. Indeed, they are necessary in any society. But while not ending this binary, neither does Christianity simply reverse it. It doesn't say, oh, well, you didn't have any power. Now we'll give you this and we'll just flip for a while. Right? It does not merely fill the top rungs of authority with new parties who will use power in the same oppressive way that is the way of the world. Because it is rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christianity neither eliminates nor merely reverses the rule ruled binary, but rather, and here's the key, it subverts it. It changes things completely. When Jesus saves us through his use of power only for service, he changes our attitude toward and our use of power. And there is nothing, friends, he says, in the world like biblical justice. Christians must not sell their birthright for a mess of pottage, but they must take up their birthright to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with their God. 
when we think about will you choose the way of the cross, we're following Jesus in that, to do justice, to love mercy, to use the things that we have been given, to steward them well. Any particular power or privilege or things that you have, you can either use that to further your kingdom and add to the strife and animosity and the walls of hostility that get put up, or you can use what you have been given and entrusted with through the power of the gospel to follow Jesus who emptied himself. That's where things begin to change. And so we'll close with this. We also need to remember our calling, 19 to 22. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And in him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Close with this. There are three identity markers that Paul is laying out here. You're citizens, you're part of God's household, you're in the family now, and you're being constructed, built together as a holy temple. If you look at all of those, to be a citizen means you have some responsibility. To be in a family means you have some responsibility. To be part of this holy temple, I'll unpack that more in a moment, there's some responsibility. There's, these are movement forward, action-oriented identities. And so to embrace these, but what good news? He's saying, you, my friends, you have access. He said, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. That's a terrible place to feel, right? Quick anecdote. Last week, took my daughter on a, her, one of her college visits, all right? She was off doing things, and the people there said, hey, here's a lunch pass for you on Saturday. And so as the 45-year-old man, I walked into that college campus awkwardly walked around trying to find a place to sit. I did not feel like I belonged, right? I was like middle school all over again. It was just this moment of like, where do I sit? What do I do? Where do I put my food? Am I doing this right? Did I go through the line the, the correct way? I mean, like all those things, I'm like any bit of just confidence. I just was like, I'm the creepy old man on campus. That's how I felt, right? Um, and so even just that little anecdote, it's like, oh my goodness, it's so easy. Like we just lose sight. In the big picture, what Paul is saying here, he's just like, Friends, you're like not a foreigner or a stranger, you're fellow citizens, you're members of God's household, like you belong. And because you belong to this family, because this family is led by Jesus, we follow him and he's doing this work of reconciliation. And he says, we're this holy temple, all right? And Jesus is the cornerstone. So you're not responsible for its stability, all right? It doesn't all hinge on you. If you mess up or you do something wrong or you use the wrong word or you post something or you retweet something and you actually, you know, it doesn't go over well. Listen, it is not contingent on you or me. Jesus is the one. He's the cornerstone of this temple. But know this. It's fascinating that the storyline of the scriptures, God's people are led out of the wilderness. They're led into their toward the promised land, there's a tabernacle, why? To experience the presence of God. Then eventually there's a temple that's built. Solomon builds this temple, this permanent structure, right? Houses the presence of God. Then Jesus shows up and says, destroy this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. Clearly saying the temple is where the presence of God is and now the presence of God is here, incarnated. But then we get to Acts. Jesus is ascended, day of Pentecost. The spirit comes down and inhabits God himself, takes up residence in God's people. That means you and I now are living, breathing temples. 
And so we need to ask ourselves, will we be part of this wall of separation, adding bricks to the wall of hostility, or will we be a support column in the temple? Because Revelation 3 says this, I am coming soon, hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. That's speaking about you and me. We get to be part of this temple that's being constructed to showcase Here's what it looks like when a people are redeemed vertically and then begin this work of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, you now are ambassadors and you're agents of reconciliation. It's not gonna be easy. I do not have, here's the the four steps we need to follow and then this is gonna summarize it and by this time next year, we won't even have to address this topic. We can move on to something else. But I do wanna end with this. How can we respond? And I just said made fun of having four things. I got four things, um, actually, for you. But, um, uh, and they all start with the same letter, but here we go. Um, I, I want to call us to this as we get ready to close in prayer. Just how do we respond as God's people? I do think it's helpful, and we've revisited these over the years, but the scriptures tell us rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. One of the best things that we can do is continue to lament as a people for the brokenness that exists, to recognize it, to see it, we also need to grow as people that would listen and learn to hear other people's stories, other people's perspectives, not to let that ultimately guide. We gotta keep going back to the scriptures. But all of this is done, we wanna love our neighbor. And I think in order to do that, we've gotta be listening, we've gotta be lamenting, we've gotta be learning together. So I do wanna invite you to something that we're going to, to do um, on February 27th. Um, and this is in the message notes. There's a link out to it. Um, on February 27th, we're just gonna have a, so one afternoon, four to six here at the church. I'm gonna lead a, a book discussion. Here's how this works. Get the book, read it, or as much as you can. There's no test, so even if you didn't read all of it, it's okay. And just come and let's dialogue about this. It's one of the ways we can listen and learn. It's not the be all, end all, but this is a helpful resource. And I think it gets into some of the tension that we've even touched on briefly here. It's linked out there. I have a few copies uh, today, so if you want to pick one up and just on the website pay for it, you can do that. Come see me after the the service. I can get you a copy of that book, or you can order it on Amazon. So that's a practical thing. So let me pray for us, and we'll continue in our service. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy, your grace. Jesus, thank you for your reconciling work. Thank you that you've torn down the wall of hostility. And I pray that you would be working in and through us as a church to bring about true reconciliation, that it wouldn't be the counterfeits that the culture offers. God, I think there are things by your common grace we can, we can learn from different approaches and different strategies that are out there. But at the end of the day, God, we want it to be centered in the gospel. We believe that's where change takes place. So do your transforming work in and through us. And God, we ask that you would do it for your glory and for our joy. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.